I was on a bike ride with a friend of mine who's an entrepreneur. His name is Josh. And we were pedaling along and Josh asked me what his young company had in common with the most successful young companies I see and work with. And I told him, you. You, Josh, are the key. A founder who believes in their product or service with all their heart, who will attract great colleagues and customers, who will work 24-7 to solve problems and overcome obstacles, who genuinely believes in their heart of hearts that their company is making the world a better place. In a world increasingly driven by data, numbers, and quantitative thinking, what is this formula for Josh's? How can investors know where the Josh's are and where they aren't? That's today on The Q Factor. Welcome back to The Q Factor. I'm Greg Fisher. Today's conversation is about the most mysterious and likely the most valuable ingredient in entrepreneurship. I'm talking about people, not profit margin, not product development, human beings. Who are the people best equipped to start and run a successful business? Who are they? What do they do? And how do we identify them? That's the subject of today's episode. My guest could not be better positioned to double click on this subject. His name is Professor Andrew Corbett. He's the Paul T. Babson Distinguished Professor of Entrepreneurial Studies at Babson College. And if you don't know Babson's place in the world of entrepreneurship, get ready. In the business world, Babson may be the closest thing to a factory producing great entrepreneurs. For over a quarter century, Babson has been ranked the number one school for entrepreneurship in the country. I'm thrilled to have Professor Corbett to take us inside Babson, and more importantly, to take us inside the minds of great entrepreneurs and the professors and culture that shapes them. Here's our conversation. Professor Corbett, thanks for joining me on The Q Factor. It's always great to talk with you, Greg. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about the unique phenomenon, and that is Babson. According to the U.S. News and World Report, Forbes, the Financial Times, Babson College is the number one grad school for entrepreneurship in the country. It's not Stanford, not Harvard, not Wharton. It's a little old Babson College in Wellesley, Massachusetts. And this is a tradition of excellence that goes back over a century. A hundred years ago, Daniel Gerber, Babson class of 1919, leaves college and convinces his father to invest in his brand new business. And that becomes Gerber baby food. Then 50 years later in 1963, Arthur Blank graduates from Babson and founded Home Depot. And then more recently, Jamie Simonoff is a 1999 graduate of Babson College. And in 2011, Simonoff created Ring. And it's not just company founders. Akio Toyota, the grandson of the car company's founder, got a master from Babson in 1982. So Andrew, I got to start there. What is at the root of Babson's success story? And what makes Babson such a remarkable place for founding and producing entrepreneurs? Thanks for a wonderful introduction to Babson College. So let me start with history. It begins with Roger Babson back at that time, a little over 100 years ago. He was an entrepreneur himself. He was in outsider, let's say, to the traditional maybe Boston culture and business that was going on. He was someone who was very successful with his own companies, but then in the stock market, he advised all his clients to get out. He foresaw what was coming with the crash. And so it's always been that we were a place about action, 
practice and being very practically focused. We put you in a place of real world practice and sort of an ecosystem where everyone at the college is creating or trying to create something, or at least that's what it feels like when you step onto the campus. Well, I, I think one of the things I find in entrepreneurs is just having a differentiated view, being willing to be different than everyone else. Yeah, I mean, I think it is. That's what you'll find with some of our students. The other things that I think makes Babson unique is focus and size. We're only about 2,500 undergraduates, and you get one degree when you come to Babson, and that's a BS in management. Half of the courses are in business, half of them are in liberal arts. But the focus is on business. It's your one degree. And there's obviously a clear, strong focus on entrepreneurship. It is about creating and figuring out new and better ways to do things. And if you're not doing something like that, you almost feel like, right. what's wrong with me? I think Babson is a good example of a business. It's an educational facility, of course, but that has a clear focus and a clear purpose. And it knows what it is and it knows what it isn't. If you're dreaming of being an entrepreneur and you you think of yourself as an entrepreneur and you're sort of wired as an entrepreneur or you're really interested in entrepreneurship, then Babson is the top school for that. So I thought to myself, since I'm studying, like, how do I identify the characteristics of entrepreneurs? How do I go looking for these incredible entrepreneurs from an investment point of view? I figure if anybody knows how to scout good entrepreneurs, <laughs> it should be Babson. What do you look for? There are characteristics and traits, I would say, that show a proclivity to wanting to do this and be an entrepreneur and that you might be good at it. But that whole thing about there being specific traits that make you an entrepreneur is really not true. You could have all the traits in the world, but if you don't act upon them and put them into action, it doesn't matter. Entrepreneurs are made. They're not born. And so what are we looking for? People who are driven, but who are curious. And then I would think there's this concept of a growth mindset. A growth mindset is just really willing to be open to new experiences, really willing to learn. You want to act, take small actions when you got an idea or something. They might not be exactly right. So there may be some failure in there of your first hypothesis or something, but you're willing to act, learn, and build from it. So that growth mindset, I think, is the most important that you're really open to new experiences really willing to learn. Not just say you're willing to learn, but like willing to take a few knocks on the chin, not have it bother you and willing to learn from it and, you know, step up and try it again. Some of the work that I'm doing is to, you know, look through companies and businesses and try to identify those companies that have these entrepreneurial characteristics, whether the founders are there or not. But if you were to sort of scout a couple of people, how would you know someone has a growth mindset? I think a lot of investors, when they're looking at companies, look for this trait. And I think this is the most important thing to make young people and anyone who later on as well successful. And I talk to my own kids about this, and that is being coachable. Are you coachable? And if you think about that, Greg, if you're going to you know, grab a couple of grand and invest in some young kid, you're not just giving them the money to help them start their business. They need experience. They need your experience and your wisdom to help them along the way as well. And so they need to be coachable. They need to know that they don't have all the answers, that they're willing to learn from other folks. Because anyone who started a business knows like the first conception of what your business is isn't how it exactly turns out at the end. 
By the time you get it up and going, it's something completely different. So along the way, you have to be coachable to say, like someone say, hey, it probably doesn't work exactly like that. Maybe you should think about trying the other way. And, you know, if someone shuts you down, it's like, no, this is the way I envision it. I always want to do it. Well, next. They're not going to get very far. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I think those are certainly signs of all great leaders, people that are open-minded and welcoming to feedback and willing to hear a different view and a different opinion. Something that I remember uh, a couple of years ago, we were together at Babson. And I'll never forget this. It really stood out for me. You were approached by a young high school student who was you know, coming into college, thinking about entering Babson. And the student came up to you and said, if I come to this school, do I have to be an entrepreneur? He was basically saying, like, I, I like it here, and I'm not sure that I want to be an entrepreneur. If I come here, do I have to be an entrepreneur? And, and you said, uh, no, in today's world, with all these small new companies that are disrupting old legacy companies, these legacy companies are realizing that they have to innovate or they're dead. So what you told the high school student is you don't need to start a business to be an entrepreneur. You can come to Babson and learn how to be innovative and entrepreneurial but then go into a large organization and be something like their chief innovation officer and sort of help them innovate and have this entrepreneurial mindset, even though it's a large established business. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that really stuck out for me and, and how Babson actually just teaches innovation in general, as well as entrepreneurship. It'll be interesting for the listeners to know that only about each year, roughly 10% of our graduates start their own business upon graduation. The vast majority of them go and work for someone else. I think about it like this. We're teaching everyone to be entrepreneurial, not necessarily to be entrepreneurs. So they have this entrepreneurial mindset so that when they go into an organization, they might just look at things a little differently. They're not afraid to take action, not afraid to have a little failure and learn from it to find the solution and make things better. So they're not going into the corporation with that typical old company man, corporate sort of mindset. They're coming in with an entrepreneurial mindset. That, that says, look, I'm, I'm here to work. I'm here to do what you need to get done, but I'm also going to help us figure out how we can get to the next iteration of what this company wants to be. So really what we do is we research, study, work with entrepreneurs so that we've learned the best practices about what entrepreneurs do to be successful, because that skill set that you can develop to be entrepreneurial is going to suit you well no matter what you do, especially in today's world where everything's changing moment by moment. It reminds me of one of the early entrepreneurs that graduated from Babson I mentioned earlier, Akio Toyota, for example. I, I thought to myself, well, he didn't come to Babson to start his own business. He was, I think, third generation Toyota, but he went back to his family business after graduating Babson to this multi-billion dollar, well-established, successful business, but went to school and studied entrepreneurship at Babson. Like, what was he doing studying entrepreneurship at Babson? And now given this conversation, I, I sort of understand. Uh, there was this quote he had that I saw. It says, always think like an entrepreneur. Toyota may sell cars in over 170 countries around the world, but we still need to think like a startup. You have a, a great book that anybody listening should pick up and read. It's one of my favorites. It's called Beyond the Champion, Institutionalizing Innovation Through People. And I think it talks a lot about this, bringing an entrepreneurial mindset to a large established business. And is there anything more that you'd want to say about that? Yeah, and I think the interesting thing about Akio Toyota 
Traditionally, if you think back to the 80s, you and I were around at that time, and Japan was going to overtake the business world. I was studying Japanese in school back then. Yeah, exactly. We were all getting ready for it. Traditionally, what the Japanese are very good at are process improvements, making things that already exist better. I think that Mr. Toyota probably picked up a few things while he was at Babson, knowing that he needed to go back and look at different things. And if you see companies today, all those car companies, they don't quantify themselves as car companies anymore. If you notice, they're all mobility companies now because they're already making this move towards a world being different. So that's an example of them thinking far to the future and trying to sort of backcast and figure out, okay, what do we need to start changing today about how we look at what our business is and what our businesses should be? You mentioned a few moments ago this idea of institutionalizing innovation. How do you take this sort of entrepreneurial mindset that a company has when they first start, then all of a sudden they get large and institutionalized and possibly a little more bureaucratic, layers of management, but you want to encourage people coming in and innovating how does a company retain innovative people? Because, and I've seen this in my own company over the years. I mean, if you bring on innovative people and you don't let them innovate, they're not going to be happy. Like these people need to stretch their muscles or it's just not the right environment for them. So have you seen any success stories around how that's done out there? Yeah, I think the places that are successful, these were these large old guard manufacturing companies that were in the space that we're talking about. DuPont, Corning, Dow Chemical, places like that. We looked at these a couple decades back because we knew they were going to have to change like who they are and what they do if they were going to exist and keep going forward. Kodak was in our sample there. Well, they didn't, right? Royal Dutch Shell, companies like that. But it does come back to like in any organization, it's about the people. But what that means for the organization is how you have to design roles and jobs for your people, particularly for these people that want to be innovators and entrepreneurs within the company. That's the most important thing that, that I've found with my colleagues over time in our research and in that book you mentioned and other books that my colleagues have written, that it's about the roles and what people do and giving them the right job and giving them the autonomy to do these things. In there, we talk about the, the concepts of innovation in a large firm. It's not one thing. As you know, it's discovery, incubation, and acceleration. Tell us a little bit, because I know those were three chapters in your book, actually, where you go through each one of them. Just give us a high level of those three steps, because I think it'd be helpful for people to hear. You know, discovery, what we're, we're really saying is it, it's R&D, right? That's where in these larger companies, you know, whether it's a coding or programming, or it is some chemical or physics or manufacturing base, like this is where we're creating the new, right? Materials, we're creating the new stuff. So think about discovery as that. It's your bench scientists and engineers creating new stuff, your classic R&D stuff. And what's interesting about that is, other people used to think back in the day, well, yeah, we do innovation. We have R&D. Well, that's only part of it. You can create something and discover something new, but if you don't incubate it, build it and build and commercialize a business around it, there are other skill sets that need to be done. So discovery, just think about it like that. It's discovering the new. Incubation is that next point in most of these firms. So put some of the scientists together with some you know, smart, newly minted MBAs or others like that. And they're going to do experiments to figure out how can we incubate this discovery into some offering that a set of customers might want, and we incubate a business around it. So it's discovering something, then incubating the business case and a business around it. And then acceleration is like, okay, we've made this little business and we've sold a few of these to a couple of lead customers, but now how do we ramp it up and accelerate it and make it into a real business that at some point 
will be a significant amount of the company's revenue. Here's the thing, though. What we find, especially in large organizations, it's the handoffs between those things. When it moves out of its discovery phase and moves out of the lab, who incubates that and why? You have people in the organization that are already running your existing business. Can you go to them and say, hey, stop the line. I got this new trial thing. I want you to build this. Like they don't have time for that. (laughs) Can you do it on Saturdays? Yeah, exactly. And you have to create real roles and real jobs for folks. I still find this still to be true, Greg. Companies create a lot of innovation jobs, but they're not creating innovation careers. I believe that in the future, whether that's 20 years from now or forward, every company is going to need an innovation division or group. But that means dedicated people whose job is to innovate for the firm. Not not part of their job, part-time over here while they're doing their real job. But I mean, this is your job. This is what you're hired for. And we're not there yet, but we need that. What's challenging about this is that research and development, innovation, the expenses associated with these things that take a decade, companies are sort of penalized for those things right now. When you spend money on R&D or hire a bunch of people to sit in a room all day and come up with cool things that might take a while, their expenses on your income statement, they reduce your earnings, reduce your margins. They're not assets on your balance sheet. So in a way, there's no real incentive for companies to do that, that can't take this entrepreneurial mindset and have a long-term view. Because if you're just focusing quarter to quarter or month to month on earnings or your accounting book value, it, it won't work. It really makes it tough then for large publicly traded companies to do this. And we see that. So if you don't have a a ton of cash, like some of the companies we talked about earlier, they have so much cash that you can just invest in in these activities and not have it worry. It, It is not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. Right. But you have to do it because otherwise I saw it and lived through it a little bit up close and personal. Otherwise you become Kodak and then, you know, you know, this all this reminds me of a, there's a case study that was written about Google by actually a friend of mine, Boris Groisberg. But he talks about Google's 20% time that you're probably familiar with. This idea that people are encouraged to use 20% of their work time to do only whatever they want to, to innovate instead of what you're told to do or your core job description. And ideas were rewarded and incentivized and competitions. And some of Google's best ideas came of that, Gmail, Google News, and other things. I think like that is an example to me of you know a company that was really concerned about losing their entrepreneurial innovative spirit as the company grew larger and became more bureaucratic. So I think many of the sort of managers of companies who are responsible for P&Ls, you know, the CFOs, you see two or three people in a corner just like throwing stuff up against the wall, not adding to the bottom line right away. It must be hard to do, but clearly for Google that paid off. But If everyone's an innovator, no one's an innovator. That's like on your sports teams, you know, right? If you have two number one goalies or two number one quarterbacks, you don't have a number one quarterback or goalie. I think it can work in some places, but I'm not a huge fan of that. Everyone should be encouraged to think innovatively and entrepreneurial within their job and do things and come up with ideas. But we need a dedicated group of individuals whose jobs are innovation. So that might scare the heck out of those same finance people poking around Because now it's not just like one day a week that people are doing this, but we have a whole dedicated staff doing this all the time. But that's what I believe that you need. Think like 50 or 60 years ago, there was no such thing as a marketing department in in companies. I mean, marketing as a profession 
really didn't become a real profession until like into the 50s and 60s. Now, did we have people doing marketing functions and jobs? Sure. Sales, promotion, all that kind of stuff. Creating marketing as a profession that you would go to school for marketing, be a marketing person, go out and get a job, have American Marketing Associations, all these things, that stuff did not exist. And if you said to someone today, you were going to start a company and not have a marketing department, they'd think you were insane. There's this educational theorist, David Kalb. He seems to have had a significant effect on you and and the work you do and how you teach. I read a bit about him. I think he talks a bit about experiential learning mostly, but could you tell us a little bit more about how he's influenced the way you operate? His work was foundational to anybody who looks in this space. And he was really explaining how people all have sort of a proclivity to learn and experience things different ways. We grasp information a certain way, and then we make sense of it another way. So you either like to grasp information by like abstract conceptualization, like you read stuff and you're really good at that, or experience, concrete experience. So it's this whole thing about learning becomes about this combination of either thinking, feeling, watching, and doing, and there are these different learning styles and learning types. And really what Kolb was telling us is that we all have a proclivity Generally, we're more comfortable learning in one style than another. So Thomas Watson, the founder of IBM, said, if you want to increase your success rate, (laughs) double your failure rate. And I remember you said, a startup is a temporary organization that moves quickly from failure to failure in search of this repeatable, scalable business model. This, in my mind, experiential learning, learning from your failures In a sense, like if you're not failing enough, you're doing something wrong, this risk taking and this willingness to fail. And then I remember you put a little F on failure. And my son and I talk about this a lot because it's like the little F implies, hey, it's no big deal. You're supposed to fail. Can you tell us a little about the experiential learning connection, David Cobb's research, and then this point about people's risk taking behavior and willingness to fail as the the signs of these great entrepreneurs? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that you you, you remembered the little F because I want people to think about it like that. Because yeah, it shouldn't be a big deal to you. And you should be testing when you're starting up this idea for a business. You'd be testing small things, pieces of your idea. Don't spend tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars on the first idea. You're like, test it in a small way and then you learn. So that's the whole process of it. Think about it like scientists, right? They have a hypothesis. So my idea for a business right now, today, whatever it is, it's just a hypothesis of how I think what I could do could interact with the markets and customers and that it'll work. And then I have to go out and test whether or not this idea makes sense. And as we discussed earlier, Greg, more than likely how I conceive of the idea of the business today, it might be a solid idea. It would be great if you had it 100% right coming out of the box, but you're not going to. So you have to go out, socialize the idea, test it, learn from others in the market test it with potential customers, get feedback from people, find out what their real true wants and needs are, recast, learn from them. I'm not saying that go start a business and have your business fail and start another one and fail. We're saying failure with a small F. We're just saying that, yeah, you went out and you showed this or you talked about this. Your first prototype was this, but you got feedback that was wrong and you had to fix it. It's that whole process of not being afraid to go out, share your ideas, have people tell you that your ideas are 
dumb, you know, or aren't going to work. Like you got to have a bit of a thick skin, but that's where you have to bring back that idea of being coachable, willing to take that experience, learn from it, rebuild, go back out again. This idea of failure and being comfortable with it and just seeing it as part of the process, I think is really key. For me, I try to look for business leaders and entrepreneurs, organizations that are innovative and also that are doing these kinds of things where they're trying things and, and willing to fail and willing to take some risk, taking a long-term view where they're not just focused on what's going to happen this month or this quarter, even though the rewards may not be there to do that. It's a sort of mindset, a behavior. And these little failures for me, I think, are, are the kind of crumbs that founders and entrepreneurs and organizations that are entrepreneurial leave behind as signs that they're doing these things, signs that they're trying lots of things that may or may not work. People who are investors, you have to think about it like this. I would say, okay, so you invested in this guy or this gal the first time out. So now let's talk about it when the company doesn't work out. Because here's the worst thing that happens is, say some of your people out there, they invest some tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars into somebody with their startup and it doesn't work out. But you want to watch and make sure that was the entrepreneur learning? Did, were they coachable? Were they sending you all the right signs? Because, you know, three years from now, the same entrepreneur is going to come back looking for money. And if you just automatically go, she failed last time. I'm not investing in her again. Well, what do you think happened in that process? She learned a ton. Absolutely. And, and you decide to pass on her. And guess what's going to happen? She's going to blow it out big. And you're going to kill yourself because she learned on your dime. And then when she needed it again, you're willing to say no. And the other smart investors are like, yeah, we'll give it to her. But you want to look a little more deeply and figure out why did it happen? And was it a case of if the, the entrepreneur was pigheaded and not coachable? And Well, then, then fine. But if he or she did all the right things, but by circumstance or something else that they really couldn't control, it just didn't work out. But you know, they've learned a lot and they're a good business person. Then when they come around again, I would look at them in a different light and say, well, they've got some experience. They've got some scars. I wouldn't immediately say no. And too many people do. One of the things that I know happens to all of us, I include myself in this, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I started a business, I grew it for 30 years, and it grew from a small business to a large business. And, and I think what happens for many of us is when we start businesses as young people, we have very little to lose, we have nothing. And we take all kinds of risks and fail a lot and pick ourselves up and do it again. And it never feels like a big deal because there's, we have very little to lose. And then as life goes on, and you accumulate things, and you your business gets larger and more people are counting on you and things get a little more institutionalized. All of a sudden, your risk-taking behavior changes. Your willingness to take risk because of your fear of losing what you already have. And I, I think a lot of times when people do fail, they stop taking risks and don't continue and they get kind of snake bitten by it and they're no longer taking the risks necessary to grow their current business or start a new one. Do you see any evidence of that? Oh, yeah. I think we see it all the time. You just explained very well in layman's terms, the assets to protect model. You know, I mean, that's it. I mean, when you have no assets to protect, there's not, nothing to worry about if you fail. But when you get bigger, you need to. And like, look, if you've been successful and you've got, you know, you have assets that you do want to protect, you should still be willing to put some of that, some percentage of that still at risk, for lack of a better term, to grow. The connection for me a little bit for... uh 
people early in their careers that are just trying to find their way. And sometimes when you're someone interviewing people, I, I think the default position is if someone's had a lot of jobs in 10 years, you know, every two years they switch, that's a negative. But actually, I wonder if there's something positive about that. It's sort of their equivalent of little failures. And I wonder in your experience in the world we're now living in, how fast things seem to be moving. Do you seem to think that's a good or bad thing? You know, how should young people prepare themselves for this world they're about to encounter, particularly given the moment we're now in, having just been through this COVID experience? We're not in a world where my father, your father, or grandparents you know, would go to work for a company for 40 years, get a gold watch, and move on. It's just, that's just not going to happen, and we all know that. So long as you're a good professional, if you, you look over 10 years and you've had five jobs, that's not a mark against anyone these days. The world changes. We know companies, due to earthquakes, disasters, global pandemics that we're hopefully just coming out of, Lehman Brothers, things like that, it used to be Post-World War II, 50 years ago, for our parents, or different things, it used to be like if you went to work for someone, you had pretty much a guaranteed job, and you don't have to worry about it. Companies can't make those guarantees anymore. Whereas it used to be, I think, people used to affiliate and identify with their company. When you ask someone what they do 50 years ago, Greg, they would tell you they work for IBM or they work for Ford. Today, when you ask someone what they do, that same person will say, I'm an engineer. And so moving from job to job, young professional, so long as you are professional, cordial, transparent, do your job, do it well, you give your employer notice and you manage it in a professional way, and you make sure you don't burn any bridges. No, that's not a problem at all, because particularly the big companies, you know where their pool of best talent is these days, big companies? Where? They're former employees, people that left them two or five years ago. They know the company. They know what we do. They were good. They worked for us a while. So don't burn that bridge because you never know what's going to come around and go around. One of the things, uh, you know, my curiosity is about how to use quantitative methods to identify characteristics and factors that drive businesses to be successful. And in this case, I'm talking to one of the world's leading experts about how to identify great entrepreneurs and organizations that are innovative. I also wonder from your point of view, Andrew, when you talk to people today, it's, you know, hey, what are you studying in school? Well, I'm learning coding or machine learning. When I think about entrepreneurs, like I don't think about machine learning and coding. I think about more like soft qualitative skills, relationship building and business strategy and those kinds of things, marketing and sales. But I just wonder like how important is it for someone who, you know, wants to be an innovator, an entrepreneur, to have these skills of AI, machine learning, data analytics, statistical analysis. I'm just curious if any of that's extraordinarily relevant in your world. I think everybody's got to have more and more of it these days. There's no way around it. Think about the traditional business disciplines. Like People used to go into marketing because they were creative types and they didn't like numbers. You can't do that anymore. And marketing is all quant-driven and driven by the data and the statistics. So I, I think everyone has to have a facility to that. The book I recommend to everybody these days called Prediction Machines, a simple economics of artificial intelligence. And what it really does is it breaks down what data can do, what these machines can predict, the different types of decision-making that goes on, how it all works, because your business is going to be affected by it. 
I think the most important thing you have to figure out what can the computer or the data and the machines do well and what do the humans still do well? So what part of the decision can I leave to the machines and what part of the decisions do I expect humans to still do and have to do because the machines can't do? I think we're all trying to figure out does the the judgment seems to be where we need the person, but does the informed human being go at the beginning of the process or the end of the process? You've got machine learning and, and machines that can actually learn now and they can mimic human think. I mean, they can do things, but there's still room for human judgment. The data doesn't tell the whole story. The data doesn't necessarily give you the answer. It has to be interpreted in some ways, usually by human beings. But what it goes to, right, if anything I would say for this whole great discussion with you today, Greg, thank you, is it goes to you as an individual, as a business person, as an entrepreneur, an investor, whatever it is you do, to continue to have that growth mindset, to be open to new things. You have to be open now to the fact that even if you don't like data, you don't like machine learning, you don't like all this stuff. It's changing business. It's changing the way business gets done. So you have to be on board to understand that it's going to change how you need to operate. And so you need to figure out, okay, me and other smart people in our organization, how do we make sure we manage this to strategic advantage for our firm? This point about being open and curious as it relates to data analytics, I I think it's always about the questions. You could have uh, huge amounts of data, but you're not going to find the answers if you don't have a question. You need to know what you're looking for. You're so right. People sometimes that aren't at the beginning of an organization, they wonder sometimes what the CEO does. What is he or she doing up there? One of the number one traits that all CEOs have, they don't have all the answers, but what they're good at is asking the right questions. So your point's well taken with data as well. Can you ask the right questions? And that's a critical component. This brings me to this last section of our talk today. And uh, this is a tradition that I have on the Q Factor that we do with all of our guests. We call it the three Qs. These are three questions we ask every guest, no matter what their background or experience. The first one is, in what field or sector do you see big data having the biggest positive impact on the world over the next 10 years? What's your thought? I'd say security and healthcare and security, I mean, just like the things we see with all these data breaches and issues we're having all over the world. So I think we're going to go through a phase, we're going through it now, where the bad guys are ahead of the curve on the data. But I think eventually there'll be a positive impact because people are starting to recognize how important data security is. But then the other one is clearly to me is healthcare comes up right off the top because healthcare you know, we're getting to a point where we can know so much about us, we can individualize, get to the genes of you and me and individualize things to keep us healthy. So I, I think that trend of almost individualized, customized medicine and treatments, data is going to have a massive impact on healthcare. And I guess thinking like a business guy, Greg, then that also tells me there's massive opportunities for anything that are any businesses around seniors and people living longer, because we're going to have more and more of our population, even more than now, living longer and longer and probably behaving differently, living into the 80s and 90s and being healthy and still really active. It's true. And I've been thinking a lot about this from a financial point of view, because like if people live an extra 10 years, it causes all sorts of havoc financially. But that's a a different topic. Well, here's the second question. 
On the flip side, what aspect of the world do you see as being the most threatened by big data over the next 10 years? You know, I'm thinking in industries and sectors again, I guess, in my head. And so I'm thinking about people in certain jobs, right? Data isn't going to make us not have jobs, but it's changing how people's jobs happen. I think like people that do sales and retail sales, and I don't mean people working in the shops, but things around retail are going to dramatically impact certain jobs that used to be commission-based. I think in that sales sector and retail selling sector and selling into retail, those jobs are how you do those jobs and how those jobs are compensated are probably going to change dramatically. Makes sense. So here's my last question. Artificial intelligence, is it our friend or is it our foe? Oh, friend, but don't make it your lover. (laughs) Keep it close. Know it well. Don't marry it from the standpoint of thinking that it's going to be the be all end all and do everything for you. You got to have it. You got to know it. But don't let it fool you into thinking it can make all decisions or know all the answers for you. You still need to be the one controlling your company, making your decisions and, and not thinking that it will make the decisions for you. I love it. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today on the Q Factor. I, this is an area of interest that you know is really near and dear to me. Thank you so much for all this time. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Andrew Corbett. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you liked the episode, go ahead and subscribe. And I'd love it if you could give us a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. I'm Greg Fisher. See you next time on The Q Factor. Greg Fisher is founder and portfolio manager of Quent Capital, a registered investment advisor. Economic and market views and forecasts stated by Mr. Fisher or Quent Capital are current as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. This presentation is not intended to be a solicitation of any kind. It is for general informational purposes only. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The views of the guests that appear on the Q Factor are their own and may not reflect the views of Mr. Fisher or Quent Capital.